Let's pray. Let's go to the Bible. Lord, we thank you so much for an opportunity to be together again. We thank you for the encouragement that you have already given to us uh, this morning as we've met together as your church, as we've remembered what you've done for us, as we've celebrated and recalled um, your great gift of grace through Jesus Christ towards us. So as we now turn our hearts and attentions to what you will say through your word to us, Lord, give us ears to hear and a heart to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to continue our series that we've been going through in the book of Philippians, um, broadly titled The Fellowship of Joy, as Paul really wants to invest into us the joy that we have in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, even in the face of great hardship and suffering at times. So I want you to grab your Bibles, uh, turn it with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 12, just to sort of overlap where we finished up last week. And we're going to go down, uh, I think, to the end of the chapter. Uh, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I hope that you have something that you can read along um, with me with that. Otherwise, I do have some of the text on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, starting from verse 12. You got it? Great. Let's read together. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's just pause there for a moment. We'll keep, pick up the rest of it shortly. Last week, when we met together, we, we took notice of Paul's glorious vision for the church, in which really he held up a glorious vision of Jesus, remember, as our model and source for a life of self-sacrifice towards others. And just as Jesus was willing to let go of his rights, remember if you were here, he let go of his rights and he embraced humility. He did it for the good of others. He did it for the good of us, for you. The, the exhortation, the encouragement or the challenge to us last week was, well, we should do the same. We should lay aside any selfish ambition or conceit where we consider and think about ourselves primarily. And the exhortation was to elevate others and treat them more significantly than we do ourselves. That's a challenge, right? I know I had numerous conversations with some of you after Sunday and during this week and I reflecting on it myself in my own life and quite a number of you said and I've said that's easier said than done Chris treating others 
more significant than yourself? Well, I think that Paul's a realist. I think he understands that. He knows. And I think that's why he says in those verses that we picked up on today as we started reading, that we have to work this salvation out. It's not something that, you know, Billy was sharing his testimony and he said, I went to a a youth event and I heard the gospel there and I was prompted in my spirit. I need to do something. I need to respond to this. And he talked with his youth leader and he said, I want to follow Jesus. It's not like on that night, Billy just went, everything's sorted now. And not because Billy's particularly better or worse than any of us, because we all say the same thing. All of us can look back at our point of salvation and it doesn't, it's not like we crossed a line somewhere and then all of a sudden life just changed and we had all of our attitudes right and we were so selfless towards other people. I've been a Christian for 30 something years following Jesus. I can guarantee you I am sometimes thinking I am more selfish now than I used to be on some days. Some people in my life will corroborate that. You can probably look at your own life and think, why am I still battling with this? This is something I should have sought. It's because Paul has said, listen, the Christian walk is about working out your salvation into every sphere of life. This whole sense where I diminish myself and I elevate others doesn't come natural to our human flesh, right? Our human experience tells us that we want to elevate ourselves at the expense of others. The gospel teaches us otherwise. What happens when God, either through miraculous intervention or maybe circumstantial providence, derails our train? I mean, the the train of the flesh I'm talking about, that train of human experience where I have a certain objective that I want to reach in life, I have a certain goal, I'm pushing towards it, I'm elevating my interests. What happens when God steps in either miraculously or just through the circumstances of life that surround us and derails that train? What happens when all the good plans for our own version of success fall through? That's a question we should ask ourselves, especially as followers of Jesus. You have some objective in your life, I know it. Some dream, some goal, some desire. More than likely, it's probably good. More than likely, you've spent a large amount of time and energy and resources in achieving those goals even. What happens when that falls through? How do we, as followers of God, respond? How do we react when our dream, our desires, our picture of success doesn't work out the way that we thought it should I think that's the question that Paul wants us to think through in today's passage, as well as offer us a safeguard, I think, so that as we are 
moving through life that we don't lose our way when the disappointments come. So where I want to pick up the train of thought here is really in verse 14. So find it again in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 14, which contains the primary command found in this entire passage. Between verses 14 and down at the end of the chapter, there really is only one command that God gives us in the text. So here is a Christian's response to frustrated plans. All right? A Christian's response to frustrated plans. It's verse 14. It's short. It says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That's a command, okay? It's not a life coach giving you some suggestions. It is a command. Do everything, not most things, not the easy things, not the inconsequential things, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Think of all the possible sins that Paul could have drawn on here. There's a big list of them. All the possible sins that Paul could have drawn on to list in this little verse. Do everything without killing anybody. Do everything without committing adultery. There are, there's a bunch of sins that more than likely we would elevate and put on that list and say, well, aren't these ones really big sins? Aren't these things really important? Aren't these things that we should do as Christians? Instead, Paul says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. They're the two things that he puts on his list. I think it's strange at first glance that he picks these two. I mean, grumbling and arguing don't seem as high up on the list as, say, murder or adultery. But if we take a closer look, I think that we can see that Paul's train of thought from last week to this week, is continuous. It's not like he finished talking about elevating other people and now he's changed topic and he's talking about something dramatically different. What did we look at last week, remember? Paul's exhortation to us was to follow the example of Christ by laying aside our agenda, embracing humility and elevating others as more significant than ourselves. So he's not shifting topic here. He's continuing to talk about the same need to lift up other people, to elevate other people's platforms, to invest courage into others, which is what encourage means. But Paul is a realist. He does understand the human condition well. He knows us better than we think he might, even from a couple of centuries ago. He understands how stubborn the flesh really is with us. And I think he accounts for the fact that we continue to build and battle this tension in life about other people's interests versus our own. So let's consider the two things he commands us not to do in this context. Okay, The first is grumbling. 
I'm not really actually sure that we have fully grasped how dangerous grumbling is. I think most of us dismiss it as maybe just a minor character flaw within ourselves. Maybe slightly more so when it's existing in other people. Um, we, We probably find it more than just maybe slightly annoying when other people are grumblers. We underestimate just how dangerous grumbling is. Consider for a moment what grumbling actually means, what it communicates. And if you're still not convinced, consider that on numerous occasions through the Old Testament, God sent plagues amongst his people that killed off thousands of them. And you know what their crime was? Grumbling, right? God treats this very seriously, and so should we. Here's a definition of grumbling that I think I'd like to put forward for you to consider. Grumbling occurs. Grumbling occurs when the perceived outcome of a situation doesn't line up with my desires. And then I express my displeasure. All right, let me say that again. Grumbling occurs when the perceived outcome, what I think should happen, what I think is the best result in all my circumstances, that's my, that's my perceived outcome. When, when that perceived outcome doesn't line up with my desires, what I want to happen, then... I express my displeasure. I don't like this. All right? Now, we can use fancy words. We can make it broad. At the end of the day, the best example is a toddler. You can have one biscuit, and then it's bedtime. All right? Okay. Yes, Dad. Here's your one biscuit. They eat that. Can I have another biscuit and then go to bed no all right what happens yeah. yes dad oh we honor you dad your wisdom astounds us i know the sugar's not good for me and i need my sleep all right it doesn't happen does it you get the the 3 year old stomp of the foot the, how, how old are you, Jacob? <laughs> and before you laugh too much, how old, am I, how old am I? How old are you? Because we all do it. We just become more sophisticated at it, right? Don't we? The, the stomp of the foot? The, you're mean. We, we all still do it. Something doesn't work out the way I wanted it to work out, the way I thought it should work out, the way that it's the best to work out. And I find sophisticated ways to stomp my feet and cross my arms and say, you're mean. Some translations, not the Christian Standard Bible, will say complaining here instead of grumbling. Or in Australia, we love to say, Winger. 
right? Isn't it funny that Australians are so quick to point at all the other cultures and talk about how much of a whinger they are? Spend 10 minutes scrolling through Facebook, you'll see how much of a whinger we are. Paul says, don't complain. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without grumbling. Don't be a whinger. What about arguing? Do everything without complaining or arguing. Again, some translations will use the word disputing. Disputing. It's the twin sibling of arguing, really. Where you find one, you will find the other. Here's my definition for arguing or disputing. Disputing takes my displeasure that I've already had because my circumstances didn't work out. Disputing takes my displeasure, weaponizes it, and uses it to manipulate the opinions of other people in order to achieve what? My desires again. So instead of just stomping my feet and saying, I don't like it, that's complaining. right? That's whinging. I don't like this. Now I'm going to start the argument. Now I'm going to give you all the reasons why you should change your mind so that I can get what? My way again. I want my second biscuit. I want, to what, I want to stay up a little bit before I go to bed again. Here's how the two troublemakers tag team our churches and our relationships. As we live life with each other in community, I begin to form a picture of what will make me most happy. Of course, I rarely admit to that. I certainly don't admit it to others. I usually don't even admit it to myself. Instead, I will use language like this. This will be best for everyone. All right? Not not just best for me. I won't use that. I'm not that selfish. Not to your face anyway. So I will use words like, this particular outcome will be best for everyone. Or... If only others could see it like I do, they would agree. Or, or couldn't you just, couldn't you just see if you were just a little more mature in your faith? Now, there's a really good angle to come at when you're a Christian. Try and try and just elevate your maturity by showing that other people aren't quite as mature as you. And then, of course, they would see that this is certainly the best outcome. We seek a certain outcome, quite often mostly because it's what we want, what suits us, what I believe to be best. And sometimes what I want isn't what happens. Sometimes I don't get my way. So what then? Well, that's when grumbling shows up. That's when complaining shows up. That's when whinging shows up. I don't like the perceived outcome of these circumstances. It doesn't line up with my desires, so I begin to let people know about it. 
To begin with, most of us are careful to use fairly safe language. We wrap our grumbling up in spiritual language to make it seem a little bit more pious. But no matter how you dress it up, complaining is complaining. Soon after complaining turns up, it's joined by arguing. We try and find out who it was that hijacked our plans. Who it was that squashed our desires. And we again, we weaponize our complaints to manipulate. We put our case forward. We try to get them to see reason. We help them see the bigger picture. We'll fill them in on what they don't know. The long and the short of it is, we argue. We try to convince other people to change their mind to get our desires. Why? Because we want our second biscuit, right? We want our own way. But look at what Paul says occurs when we resist the temptation to continually leverage our desires and our significance. Look what happens when we humbly allow others to be more significant than ourselves. And look what happens when we actively work to elevate others by not complaining when things don't work out the way I wanted them or arguing and disputing to try and get my own way. Read with me again Philippians chapter 2, verses 14. This time we'll just go down to verse 16 and see it in its broader context. You got it? Do everything without grumbling and arguing. There's the command. So that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Pause there. When we refuse to engage with grumbling and complaining, there is a significant chain reaction. We can see the relationship between verses 14 and verses 15 in your Bible, if you look at it, by the way that the Paul uses the, the word, the phrase, so that. It's there in the Christian Standard Bible and something similar in the ESV or NIV or whatever it is that you're reading. Look at what he lists in this chain of reaction. Do everything without grumbling and complaining so that. So whatever's coming next is connected to our refrain from our refusing to get into that game of elevating my position over the top of other people. First thing he says is you'd be blameless and pure. He says... As we don't argue and as we don't complain and whinge and try to elevate our own position, he says, you are children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. And then thirdly, he says, and you shine like stars in this world. Well, how does all that happen? Interestingly enough, it mirrors the pattern we saw last week, Right? Can you recall what we saw in that glorious vision of Jesus that Paul held up for us to be able to copy, to to pursue in this glorious vision of the church together? 
We saw that Jesus first let go of something, was his rights and Jews as the Son of God, and then he embraced humility in the role of a servant. The same pattern exists here in this passage. We let go of complaining and arguing and we embrace something. What do we hold on to? It's there in the text. We hold firmly to the word of life. We let go of our desire, our agenda, and we hold on to the word of life. We cling, in other words, to Jesus. We embrace the gospel. We view our worth and value, even our identity, through who he says we are and not what we can manipulate through our circumstances in order to validate how important we think we really are. We want other people to see us and affirm us and think, what a smart person, what a wise lady, what a... And so often we are drawing on everybody else's opinion. So we manipulate our circumstances to gain more of that. And all the while, Jesus is already saying, you are precious. You are loved. You are bought with a price. You're not your own. A church that embraces this gospel-informed way of life truly will stand out like bright stars in a dark sky. It is so different to how the world is teaching us and shaping us and molding us to operate, to think, to engage, to relate. A church that truly embraces clinging to the word of life for its identity so that we can easily... I'll change that. It's not easy. But so that we can continually lay aside our grumbling and our complaining and say, Jesus has already given me the worth that I need. That type of church really will stand out. It really will be a bright star in a dark sky. Do you remember the one thing that Jesus said would most enable the world to know that we are his disciples? There's one place where Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said it. Right, John 13, 34. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, now this is important, there's a a comparison that Jesus is making here. Just as I have loved you, You are also to love one another. By this, right? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How did Jesus love us? That's important in this John 13 passage. If we are to love one another, like Jesus loved us, then it's important for us to understand how did Jesus love us? Well, we could go back to last week's passage, Philippians 2, 6 and 8. 
who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Jesus loved us. And so John 13, Jesus talking to his disciples says, Hey, listen, if you love people like I've loved you, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another like that, When we fail to love each other as Jesus has loved us, it it isn't only that things get uncomfortable when we go up to have a cup of tea and you see that person that you're sort of a bit out of sorts with and you're like, ooh, what do I say to that person? Like They're so annoying. That's, That's the least at stake here. That's the least at stake. What is at stake is no less than the stars being wiped from the sky. Because that's what it looks like to this world when there is a church who humbly refuses to get into the complaining and arguing relationship game and starts to elevate each other's interests and humble themselves in the process. And Paul says, listen, when that happens, you will be stars in the sky. You'll be so obvious in a dark world. And when we, when we start to get into that game, well, the stars fall, don't they? When grumbling and arguing are the culture of a church, when our fellowship is marked by such sin, it is a failure to acknowledge and cling to the word of life as being sufficient for my satisfaction. So what do we need? Because it's hard to do that, right? It is for me. What does it mean to day after day continually seek to be like John the Baptist? My core group's reading through the gospel at the moment. We just started talking about John the Baptist the other night. We've been reading together and discussing. And he, He's the guy that Jesus, that Jesus said, there has never been a man as great as John the Baptist, and there never will be. What an astounding thing for Jesus to say about anybody. Never a greater person ever existed before, nor ever will again. And one of the defining moments of John the Baptist's life was the moment when he said, I must what? Decrease and he must increase. John got it. I think that's what defines his greatness. I think that's why Jesus could look at him and say, listen, no one's as good as, no one's as great as that. No one's got it like John's got it before. Well, maybe we won't be John the Baptist, but, but how, do we, how do we do this together? One significant way is through encouragement. Encouragement. It's where, it's where Paul goes in this text. 
As soon as he starts talking about the, the battle of, of not grumbling and arguing and, and the battle of not elevating our own desires and, and trying to push other people's more significant themselves, straight away, Paul runs to the issue of encouragement. So let's just talk about that briefly before we're done. Encouragement. I think it's far more than a pat on the back. That's so often what encouragement gets sort of diminished to in Christian circles. Someone walks past, gives you a little pat on the back, whether it's physically or emotionally, some little word that just sort of, you know, pat on the back, good job. And we go, we've encouraged them. Yeah, look, maybe we did, but I think we can do more than that. To, to encourage someone is to invest courage into them. Right? It's to invest in their life in a way that elevates and strengthens them, that after the conversation they had with you, they walk away feeling stronger. How do we safeguard our churches to remain vigilant in clinging to Christ? How do we safeguard our churches to remain vigilant in rejecting the destructive presence of grumbling and complaining? And the answer is encouragement. It's such a significant ministry in the life of a church. It's where Paul turns his attention to. Have a look at it in verse 17 and verse 18 of Philippians 2. Paul says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith. Basically says, listen, I might die. He's in jail. He's in jail for the gospel. That's Paul's way of saying, listen, I might, I might not get out of jail. Maybe I'm going to die here. Maybe I will, I'll be killed for my faith even. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Straight away, Paul jumps to the type of relationship where we can celebrate with each other, regardless of the circumstances. Encouragement always begins with a genuine, mutual gladness. Where we can truly be happy for one another. Rejoicing in each other's achievements. Because remember, my goal here is, how do I elevate you? So when I see you have a win, when I see you taking the next step, even if it's like that three-year-old having a little temper tantrum because they didn't get their second biscuit, maybe the next night when you say to them, no, no, you can't have your second biscuit, maybe they go to have a temper tantrum and they go, you see them, don't you? Those little three-year-old internal struggles. And eventually they're sort of like, oh, okay. All right. It's still not where I want them to be, but it's better than where we were yesterday. Let's celebrate that, right? When your child is learning to walk, and the very first time they walk and take three steps and then fall over, we don't say, oh, you failure. You could have got 10 steps. Get up. Come on. Keep going. We don't. We celebrate the three steps they took. A mutual gladness with each other. 
a mutual rejoicing at one another's achievements. And to help us clearly see what that looks like, we have in the text two examples of Paul's key friendships. First one is Timothy. Have a look in Philippians 2. And uh, you get this little passage from verses 19 down to the end of the chapter. We're just going to sort of, I'm just going to highlight them and just leave them. I'd love for you to have a read through them more carefully. But from verses 19 down to verse 24, you get Timothy. Now, I hope in the Lord, Jesus, to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character. Because he served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. I want you just to know that Paul is willing to separate from a friend in order that he may benefit others. Timothy is with Paul and Paul says, listen, I'm willing to give up my friendship with Timothy. I'm willing to give up his companionship here. He's very, very dear to me, like a father is to a son, like a son is to a father. That's our relationship. But I'm willing to send him off to you so that he might encourage you. And Paul also says, but listen, as he encourages you, I'm going to be encouraged as well. There's this mutual benefit in encouragement. You will never run out of You will never run out of the ability to encourage someone. Your bucket will never go dry. The more you pour encouragement out on others, it seems like the Lord just keeps filling it back up again. Keep throwing that encouragement out. You won't drain it. In fact, my experience has been the more you encourage others, it seems like some of it starts to come back. And it seems like there's something inside of us that just goes, oh, I just want to encourage more because it feels good. It's, it's nice. And there's an encouragement that comes back the other way. You can see in that little passage that Paul and Timothy enjoyed a like-mindedness that was centered on the interests of others. And ultimately, Paul says, on Christ. Timothy had proven character. He had been doing this long enough that his character had been tested. It was obvious. And then you get... Epaphroditus. I wonder how often he had to spell his name for people. So Paul says in verse 25, But I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he's been longing for all of you and was distressed because he heard, because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. I'll just read it there, leave it there for the sake of time. I want you just to notice that Epaphroditus was a member of the church in Philippi. That's where he came from. He'd been sent by the church to give aid to Paul in his imprisonment, to deliver a financial gift, we find out later in this book, that will help out Paul's needs. But Paul viewed him, he said, as a brother, not just some delivery guy. Oh, thanks for the gift. See you later. 
Paul viewed him as a brother, as a co-worker, a fellow soldier. Not only is the relationship between Paul and Epaphroditus sweet, you can see from this text that Epaphroditus also had a deep and intimate relationship with his church. He had somehow heard on the grapevine that it seems Epaphroditus had got really sick. Paul says he almost died. And the church all the way back in Philippi had heard that. They'd heard that Epaphroditus was really sick and they were distressed. Now Epaphroditus was better, but he was distressed. He was worried because he was worried for his church. There's this really intimate relationship between them all. Encouragement is built on the foundation of investing honour into other people. Verse 29, it says, Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honour. So where does that leave us as we finish? How should we safeguard this community, Raymond Terrace Community Church, against grumbling and arguing? How should we pursue being bright stars in a dark world? How do we be faultless in a crooked and perverted generation? One option is just to retreat. Buy a block of land up in Chichester National Park. Form a commune. Don't engage with the world. Right? The problem is we all know that cults fall apart from infighting just as easily as anybody else. That's not a good option. Maybe we go on the offensive Make this church a militant movement where we take back ground from the world. We own those sinners out there, right? Wrestle back our rights by force. That doesn't work either. Or maybe we can take the words of Jesus seriously. Just maybe there truly is more power in a community that sacrificially loves others above itself. Maybe we pursue the ministry of encouragement like we have never pursued it before. Maybe it's asking Jesus to open your eyes to all the ways you are pursuing your agenda, your desires, and then asking him for the humility to lay them aside. Just maybe, maybe investing honour into others is the most powerful way that we can safeguard the health of this church and be a witness to the power of the gospel which can transform lives and turn us, pretty ordinary people really, aren't we, into bright stars in a dark sky somewhere. Maybe day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, we can just do the simple work of committing ourselves fully to the work of dismantling a grumbling, discontented culture and spend our sweat in elevating the worth of others as we just simply together say, come on. Let's keep clinging to Jesus. So, go do something about it. Because we can talk about encouragement all day long, same way as we can talk about evangelism all day long. 
It really doesn't start counting until you do it. There's a simple way you could, even today. And it's more than a pat on the back. It's more than a good job. You could start there, but don't let it end there. Pick one person here. You could do it discreetly. You don't have to turn around now. Pick you. You don't have to do that. Just discreetly over a cup of tea, pick somebody. Invite them out for a cup of coffee. Maybe it's more appropriate to send them a letter, a text message. Do something to invest honour into their life this week before we get back here next Sunday. And then do that again the next week and the week after. Maybe you can pick more than one person as you start to practice and you could pick two people to do it with. If, by the way, someone takes you out for coffee and says something nice to you this week, or you get a text message, we don't have to play the Christian humility game. We're like, oh, no, it's all Jesus. You know, Just smile and say thank you. If someone invests honour into you this week and talks to you and says nice things about you, smile and say thank you. That doesn't come naturally either, but that'll be another week. Let's, let's leave it there. Let me finish by reading Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection, sisterly affection as well. Outdo one another in showing love. It's the only place in the New Testament that you're going to find competitive Christianity. Good competition to have there, right? Outdo one another in showing honour. So let the competition begin. Yeah? We'll all win. All of us will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning as we've met, as we've worshipped, as we've remembered, and as we've listened. Lord, help this listening to go beyond this room. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of this gospel. Help us to work this out into our daily living. We need your help. We tend to be pretty selfish people. But by your spirit, will you shape us and transform us to look more like Jesus, who let go of his rights and embraced humility. Help us to encourage and elevate others. Help us to not be whingers. Amen.